2: Off track with Hinchin and Ross. Hello and welcome, guys, to another Tuesday episode. We still haven't named this one officially, which um, is the embarrassing
3: panic, for which us. I liked.
2: Yeah, it's not bad. Again, there's there's lots of submissions from our uh, dedicated listeners, uh, which we appreciate. And I'm sorry that we do such a bad job of actually acting on any of the stuff you guys sent through. Uh, regardless, we appreciate it. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you commenting and, and submitting suggestions for whatever this segment will be one day called. Uh, But in the meantime, welcome, and we'd like to welcome to the show a personal friend, a colleague, uh, an extraordinary broadcaster, a racing dad. Uh, You will know him from NBC's IndyCar IMSA coverage. You'll know him from his very popular and long-running radio show and, uh, and many other sporting endeavors, be it basketball, college, pro, whatever it is. Of course, we're talking about Mr. Kevin Lee. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Uh, Just like when I was on the Dinner with Racers podcast last year, I'll say the same thing. We've run out of ideas. I get it. I've been there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, sir. No,
1: sir. I'm very honored. I'm very honored.
3: Actually, I've been I've been suggesting having you on for as long as we've been doing the Tuesday episode, because as soon as we started doing this, we put together a list of people. And I was like, we got to get Kevin Lee. But I've got to be honest. It's it's part of my long play to try to get you to sneak me into a broadcast. Because I okay. feel like you're the one that has that power down in pit lane. James is inaccessible. He's in the booth. I feel like I could really guilt you into it. So we
1: need your buddy Rossi to win a race and you just be there. That would be the easiest
2: that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a tall order, man. I don't know. It's all right. We can talk <laughs>
3: about him. He's not here.
2: Uh, <laughs> Oh, that's great. Um, but no, I think, Tim, you're absolutely right. If there's one guy that can get it done, it's Mr. Kevin Lee. He's, he's, the, he's the guy with the power. He's the guy with the microphone. He can make stuff happen. As much as I don't endorse this, um, the last thing we need is you on a broadcast. But Kevin, I understand if he, he, he corners you in the pit lane and finds a way, I, I get it.
1: So Tim is good at just kind of inviting himself to things. Yes. Very good. I suggest you just make friends with flavor. Flav in Detroit next year, and just hang out with him. There's guaranteed there airtime right there. there.
3: All right. Who, who,
1: by the way, now is everywhere. I had not <laughs> heard of him. Now, I know he was on a reality show, but other than when Hinch was on dancing with the stars, I don't watch reality television. Uh, but when I stumbled upon him in Detroit, that was the first I had been aware of him since probably the early 90s and now he's everywhere he was on CBS this past weekend he was on the NBA finals the man is a marketing maven
2: and and I recently saw a post from Will Power that at one of Flava's concerts he was wearing his Will Power (laughs) t-shirt so he's still repping the IndyCar paddock and we love it we love Uh, it Uh, all right so let's get into it I mean Uh, everybody, everybody, I think listening here knows you from, you know, what you do on air for IndyCar, probably primarily just based on who our audience is. Um, but how did we get there? Who is Kevin Lee? A Indianapolis native, right? A, a Ball State graduate. Uh, but like kind of talk about your, your start into the broadcasting world. That's like I said, I know you went to Ball State. I think you went for telecommunications, right? So it was- Was yep. something in broadcasting always the uh, always the goal for you?
1: It was. I'm I'm a failed athlete, so I wanted to be, <laughs> you know, a major league baseball player. You know, I wanted to play center field for the Cubs or, or something like that. But by the time, well, really by the time I was in junior high, I knew that wasn't going to happen. I still played through high school, but I knew that you know maybe Division Four or something like that was going to be my best outcome. Uh, so my high school had a radio station, so I started doing the football and basketball games. In high school and a lot of other things. And that's what I went to college for. But I somewhat stumbled into motorsport. um, So I will admit, I was not a huge racing fan at all. I lived in Indianapolis. So I listened to the Indianapolis 500 on the radio. It was only only on the radio, live at the time. It was a re-air at night. And that was a tradition from everyone. And I was a fan of the radio broadcast as a radio wannabe announcer. And then I started an internship at the big radio station in Indianapolis, my senior year of college, and it started in May. And that's my assignment. You're going to the track and you're getting interviews. So that's how I was indoctrinated into it. But my goal all along was to eventually be the voice of the Pacers or the Cole to do something else. And I worked on those broadcasts for many years. But as we like to say, stick and ball was kind of the plan. But then I realized, wait a minute, I enjoy this and there's an opportunity here and I needed to learn something about it anyway. I hosted a daily talk show on the radio. So I needed to know at least the Indy 500 and eventually I called and said, Hey, I'd like to do one of the turns for the 500 on radio started with that and then decided I'd like to do more and do all of the races and to do all of the races you needed to move to the pits. So that's how I ended up there and I think the feeling, and this is what I tell young broadcasters as well, it's more important that you know how to do interviews, that you know how to do play-by-play, you know the craft. You can learn the sports, and that's essentially right. what I
2: did. Interesting. Okay, so what was the what was the first year you did radio uh, at the 500?
1: 2001. First time I was on the air. So the plan was I was in turn two. We were going to go turns one and three. Uh, On the first lap and two and four on the second lap. And that was the year that Scott Sharp crashed from the pole and slid into my view. So, and that's the hardest thing about being one of the play by play guys on radio because the cars disintegrate and they're difficult to identify. And you're hoping you got it right. And luckily, I, I got it right as the car is sliding in front of me. So that was the first time I was on air. I did turn two for three years and then moved to the pits in 2004. And that's when I started doing. All the races, and then i I filled in for Jack Root on verses in two thousand and nine. and that's when I started doing a little bit of television and did indie likes. that was your rookie year, right? two thousand and nine is right uh, that was really my first time doing television. and then one when, when NBC, I guess essentially Comcast bought NBC and NBC took over production in two thousand and eleven they fully revamp the broadcast. And that's when I joined full-time.
2: That's fascinating. So like for me, I, I got an opportunity to work with the radio broadcast back in 2010. Yeah, Um, that's right. I I was still in lights, but uh, I was, I was up there with Mike in the booth uh, up in the pagoda calling, calling the race. And that was fascinating. And now having obviously the, the experience on the TV side, I'd love to know, I'd love to get your kind of, you know the, the difference for you and what you liked with the pros and cons of, of radio versus television for me just thinking about it and like I listen back to certainly clips of of the radio broadcast and I find I find it such a unique skill and and the crew that they've got at Indycar Radio is so good at it. The way they do the handoffs around a lap at Indy, like I was watching a qualifying video from someone just the other day and it's and it's so good between all of them. Um, and, and you don't have any of the visual things that you have in the booth, right? So right, right now it's me, Lee Townsend, we can all wave at each other and like make eye contact. And you can know when someone's about to stop or when someone wants to jump in with radio, you kind of just have to understand each other and be able to, to read the room without seeing anyone, which is just so challenging. And what makes
1: it even more amazing is up until 1996, The Indy 500 was generally the only race that that team announced. So they worked together one time a year. They would do practice runs throughout the month and treat, uh, say, the carb day practice like the real thing. Uh, But until the IRL was formed, but even then, it's generally booth announcer, one turn announcer. It's not one, two, three, four, plus the booth. So you're really just depending on the guy in front of you, hoping he got it right and then knowing his cadence to when he's going to finish. And even harder is the producer knowing when to turn someone's microphone up because we don't have control of that. So they're kind of Ah. following along with that. MRN, the NASCAR broadcast has the ability for their turn announcers to turn themselves on. That's why you always hear trouble in turn two because that's what they do. Their mics are live and that's kind of their cue to get it there quickly is the guy just blurts it out and interrupts whoever's talking with IndyCar radio. Our process had always been, you have to get on the intercom and say trouble in turn two, but no one else hears that. And then they come to you. So it's so, just a, a different, different style.
3: Yeah. I recently read a uh, Paul page's book kind of going through the, the process and the, of how they would do that. And I guess it just never occurred to me until I read that. And then of course you lived it just how much of a production that is and how like, you can't really have like anything pre-planned because you don't know what's going to happen. So it's just, it's fascinating. If you guys haven't read it, I highly recommend it.
1: Uh, And the lead announcer is essentially the producer. Now there is a producer, but when Paul was doing it, he produced the thing, Mike King as well. And Bob Jenkins, the late great Bob Jenkins uh, was very honest and said, I didn't enjoy that part of it. He loved the radio network, but Bob much more enjoyed the television process where they are telling us what to do, um, the lead announcer can help, and and you know you and Townsend will get on the the call back and make suggestions. But the producer is in charge. In radio, there's not enough time for that, and the the anchor. So now Mark James, he is the one that mo- mostly decides because they can get in the ear to him and say there's a crash in turn two, and he decides how to
2: navigate that. That's so fascinating.
3: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here.
1: Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh,
3: <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Okay, so we we know that that Bob Jenkins preferred TV over radio. What do you what do you prefer? What's your preference? Um, I'll be honest. I
1: prefer television because television pays better than radio. So (laughs) that that has allowed that to become a a full time job. Um, When you're doing the radio broadcasts, you need to do several other jobs, which I did uh, back in the day. And then from the from the aspect of a pit reporter, I like TV more because we can do more. And it's it's totally different preparation. In all honesty, on radio, it was even play by play in the pits. Because you can't multitask. Uh, If I'm talking, that means we're not seeing what's happening, or we're not being told what's happening on the track. So you got to keep things pretty concise. There's not storytelling when you're a pit reporter, very much in the pits. You got to keep it up top to know what's going on. Whereas on a TV broadcast, we can tell some stories and do more background, and there's a lot more research involved because of that. But you can still see the pictures, and then we can do something secondary. So. Both have their pluses. I I love play-by-play, so I really did enjoy radio play-by-play and just the lack of
2: planning and let's just let it play out. But TV allows you to do a lot more. Do you enjoy the interview aspect of it? Do you enjoy having to, you know, because sometimes it's it's great you're covering an awesome (laughs) moment that someone's really thrilled to be a part of, and sometimes you got to get in there when you're the last person that a driver wants to see, but I, I always felt like you navigated that very well, you know, when I was on the other side as, as a driver, uh, but I'm curious to kind of know what, what your opinions are of it and, and how you enjoy that side.
1: It's not super enjoyable to, to talk to people after they've crashed, but they get it. That's why this is more enjoyable than say, being a football or a basketball sideline reporter or post game interviews. That was my job For the Pacers and Colts, and uh, I wanted the team to win because I worked for the team and I was a fan. But I really wanted them to win because life was miserable. (laughs) Plus, you're working for the home team, so you have to soft shoe everything to begin with. So that was really difficult. And they don't need me. No, they're not depending on brands and sponsors. They have guaranteed in the NBA. They have guaranteed contracts in the NFL. It doesn't immediately impact them, but a racing driver understands that, all right, I didn't make the podium. My only other chance to get on television is I got to do this interview. So it's a team. And I think the drivers kind of respect that I'm, I'm not going to try to throw them under the bus. And it's not my job to offer an opinion. I just ask the question. You guys tell me what happened.
2: It's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of journalists, reporters, whatever, over the years comment that, drivers in general just seem to be much better interviews than other quote-unquote stick and ball athletes because i think of that exact reason right we're all trained very young about the media side of it that every sponsor on the car you're a representative for you're a spokesperson for so you've got to represent them well is that something you experience as well comparing to to basketball players football players things like that very much so um Most of them, by the time they get to the
1: NBA and the NFL, are pretty good, not all. What's really challenging is when you're coming up, trying to do interviews with high school football players or basketball players. So say you've got a three-minute interview It's generally two and a half minutes of me talking, asking questions (laughs) and a lot of one word answers. College can be tough too. By the time you get to the pros, they're all media trained and and they all recognize me. They know I work with the team. So I didn't have any major issues there as well. But yes, uh, racing drivers get it. They're good. I like the pit reporter aspect compared to the sideline reporter aspect too, because I don't know that a sideline reporter often gives you something that the booth guy cannot give you. Whereas I do have access in middle of a race to, I think, really give you things that you guys don't know. And and oftentimes that's how I base my reporting or my searching is if I hear the analysts ask a question to themselves, and sometimes you'll uh, radio down during a break, Hey, check into this. I have the ability to go up and ask. You can't, I can't go ask Rick Carlisle during a Pacers game what exactly he was thinking there. I can ask uh Tim Sindrick what he was thinking, and usually they'll tell me.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh but it's, it's just it's just funny. I mean I, I've always found that that element of it kind of interesting that drivers just are kind of forced to be that way. And so it's it's recognized by, you know, people in the position of having to yep. sit through and talk to different athletes. Um and that that's gotta be uh a nice little bit of experience and advice you can give to your own son. As uh, we we mentioned at the top of the show, racing dad, proud father, uh, Jackson Lee, uh, has been competing in the Road to Indy for quite like, three, four years now. Three years, um, yep. Three years. Partial
1: three years. We still never made it through a full season. Run out of budget <laughs> every year, but we've done better
2: than I ever expected. (laughs) Yeah. By, by a long shot. So, I mean, when did, when did Jackson really kind of catch the racing bug and, and come to you at what point did your life change for the worse when your son came to you and said, dad, I want, I want to be a racing driver.
1: So I swore from before he was born that he would never do this. And this comes more from my wife, Stacy's side of the family. Uh, She had a brother that drove sprint cars his son drove sprint cars and quarter midgets. And they would uh, basically give me grief and say, we're going to make him a driver. And I would say, no, he's going to play baseball and play basketball, football, anything. And that's what he did as a little kid. But we made the mistake of going to some of these quarter midget races and then they became sprint car races. And okay, we'll do it for fun. We'll do quarter midget racing for fun and then it kind of grows from there, and and he moves into go karts, um, and he's still playing baseball, basketball, and football all the way through. So, in hindsight, maybe we should have picked one, uh, and but then that would have just been more expense. We were doing all we could, and and when it got out of hand, was almost immediately we couldn't afford <laughs> club level go karting. Yeah. So I quickly started working um, the resources I have with a platform and it really kind of started people had heard that he was driving and offered offered sponsorship. Uh, and there's not a lot of return in go-kart racing. And then we let him do the Lucas Oil carts to car shootout and I thought, well, at least I'll give him a chance and see if he's any good at this and you know, I'm assuming he won't win because all these other contenders are doing national karting programs, spending 150 grand a year and we're doing things part-time, and he showed up and he was good. He was just as quick, won a scholarship, yeah. so that kind of started down that path. And that's when it's become real, and somehow we found enough budget for him to do something uh, for the last several years.
3: So was there a balance there between, like, obviously you're very proud that your son's good, but then it's also like a little bit of, ah, sh- he's good. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. like, if he had showed up and got dead last, and be like, well, you know, we gave it a shot, you know? Like, yeah, let's we- go back ex- to baseball and basketball, like...
1: And and this wasn't that I didn't have confidence in him. It's just that I knew all of these kids are really, really good. And they spend a lot more time doing this because they had better resources than he did. But when he got an equal equipment, that was kind of a difference because he never had a new go-kart. The engine was never refreshed. We ran on old tires a lot. Uh, and he's a foot taller than most of the other kids. So go-karting <laughs> was is challenging.
2: Something
1: uh, it's you four cannot four. ignore yeah. yeah. Uh, and then when he got into equal cars, he did really well. And that went well for the first few years. and he won the team USA scholarship. And then you get back into to the the team aspect where it's not all equal. And I think he's had a fair chance, but he hasn't been able to win like a Kyle Kirkwood or Oliver Askew, which is, you know what it's probably going to take when you don't have family wealth. Um but I, I do think he's going to be able to make a career out of it. He already does a decent amount of coaching. He's um doing some sports car racing where you do have the opportunity to eventually get hired. So I, I think there is a possibility. And and he's basically decided I would rather do this, coach, drive wherever I can, than sit at a desk. So that's kind of the path. And we'll keep grinding and as long as I can find budget and hopefully that number lessens as we move forward.
2: It's uh it is such a grind. It, I mean, we I've been there, I know exactly what it is you're going through, but Uh, And and you and I have talked about this and it kind of leads nicely into the next, the next thing I wanted to chat about. Um, I I have been so impressed with your ability to fundraise at this level of the sport. It is not easy to find money to go racing. And Mm -hmm. when you're doing it at a level that's not on television, that, you know, isn't really covered by anyone for any reason. um, It's even tougher to find that return on investment, that ROI that sponsors are looking for. And year after year, Jackson Lee's on the grid. He's in a good car. He's you know he's doing well. And he, it's uh, it was always super impressive to me. And that is part of the reason why uh, recently a business partner of mine, Tony Calderone and myself, who uh, along with David Martinez own a company called Speed Group, which helps young families and, and young drivers sort of navigate the the pitfalls and minefield that is you know coming up through uh, through the junior categories of motorsports, and obviously fundraising is one of the most important parts of that. And uh, I had a conversation with with Tony at one point said, Hey, look, man, I think we got to talk to Kevin, because Kevin has done some incredible I've been through this, I know exactly what you're going through. And the success that you had at the level that you're working with was remarkable. It's, It's such a rare thing to see. So credit to you for that. And uh, I'm sure that Jackson is is very appreciative and understanding of how lucky he is to have Kevin Lee as his dad in this particular endeavor. But we reached out to you about, hey, do you want to jump on on board with with Speed Group and kind of help us and help our clients uh, with your playbook on on how you've been so successful? And we were happy to announce a couple of weeks ago that you're officially part of the team. So welcome aboard. Thank you.
1: So I had somewhat joked that maybe I'll go down this path eventually. And I've used Alex's dad, Peter Rossi, as an example of he got Alex to Formula One and to IndyCar by raising money as well. And some other dads I've spent a lot of time that have been super helpful with, like Barry Piggott, Spencer's dad, um, is, is one of those. Joey Newgarden. Uh, quite a few dads have reached out and been helpful over the years. But I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it on my own. And I don't think I ever would have pulled the trigger on that. I needed help. And I'd always in the back of my mind thought if the right opportunity to work with someone came around because there are aspects of the business that I wouldn't feel comfortable about. And Tony is gonna be able to take care of the negotiations and you obviously bring an entirely different aspect and most management companies don't have as someone is a very recent and still active driver to be able to, to approach it from that side of things Um, But I think I can bring something to the table. And some of it is not only media training for the drivers, but it's parent training. And this is an example I've used before that when, so the good teams don't just accept your check. You know, we always, people seem to think that you can just write a check and you can get on the grid. You can with some teams to a certain level. With the good teams, you've basically got to try out because there's a waiting list of Drivers that want that seat. And I've had team owners tell me the kid was fine. The dad looked like he was going to be a pain. So we could help the dads navigate that to make sure that you're not a problem, not only for your kid, but also impacting the career. We think we can help save money, not make mistakes. A lot of times the money's the same. So how do you choose the team, the series? Um, You hopefully have some partners or want to find some. So I'll give you my playbook, the template. Um, to, to be able, and I think people will be surprised. There is a network out there that everyone has where you can find budget. None of Jackson's partners, uh, had any relationship with us more than three or four years ago. I didn't know any of them. These are not family friends. These are not people that I've been able to lean on. I'm not the CEO of a company. So that was difficult. Most of the drivers have that type of background with their family, but I do have the IndyCar paddock and that's what everyone else has. Not selling the series you're in, you're selling the series you want to go to and the stars that are involved in that. So there is a way to make it happen if you do it the right way and you get the right help.
2: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, we're excited about the future of that. It's, it's super exciting to have you on board as well. Um, I mean, the off season is, is long, it's cold, it's tough, but I know that, uh, trackside goes, you know, throughout. So why don't you tell everybody where they can listen and, and catch a little bit of, uh, of Kevin and Kurt and, and keep up on the racing world.
1: So we're usually on Tuesday nights, but we do bounce around during the winter because the radio station, uh, 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan in Indianapolis, also airs the Pacers. So if the Pacers are playing, we shift to Monday or Wednesday. We'll take uh, Christmas and New Year's week off, so we take two weeks off at the end of the year. But otherwise, it's one of those nights. Uh, I usually tweet something the day of the show, just to remind people when it's on, at Kevin Lee 23 on X. And then there's a podcast as well. So we always post the podcast after it's over. So we encourage people to listen live, but otherwise podcasts are great because they're convenient.
2: Yes, they are. As the people yes. listening to this know very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Kevin, I uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for sharing a little bit. Uh, thanks for signing up with Speed Group and joining us on this fun little new adventure together. And yeah, everybody tune in uh, to Trackside. You heard where to listen to it as we try to get through this long slog that is the winter. And I know we're all excited to hear race cars back on racetracks as soon as possible. So Kevin, thanks again for, uh, for stopping by today. Thank you guys. This has been off track with Hinch and Rossi off track is part of the serious XM sports podcast network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today, wherever you stream your podcasts, we're at ask off track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown. he's Alexander Rossi, and if you want to follow Fim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at TheTimDurham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. Off Track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Fim.
0: We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet five dollars get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win. You just can't miss Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. Twenty-one plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. Ten dollars first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable. Bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com/sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER.